Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back. After a long hiatus, we're back with episode 15 of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. My name is Mike Cerulli. And I'm David Kostak from the Connecticut Democratic Party. And this week on the show, I had a chance to sit down with two guys who you might be familiar with if you've watched the governor's press conferences throughout the past year. I talked to our chief operating officer of Connecticut, Josh Jabal, and the governor's chief of staff, Paul Mounds, and they've been integral both in front of the camera and behind the scenes, responding to COVID and passing the budget this year. And then uh, coming up, there is an election in Connecticut. Seems like we always have an election. Seems like after the election, we started (laughs) having more elections. Well, guess what? There's another one coming. August 17th, there's a state Senate seat up for grabs in Fairfield County. It's all of Greenwich and parts of Stanford and New Canaan. The Democratic candidate is Alexis Gaventer, and she joins us today. Well, Dave, I've had a chance to go down there to that district to knock doors with Alexis, and it is so much energy. There's so much energy down there. Uh, it's a critical hold for our majority in the state Senate, and I hope everyone can find a little bit of time between now and August 17th to volunteer and make phone calls or come down there and join us if you can. So without further ado, my interview with our chief operating officer, Josh Chabal, and the governor's chief of staff, Paul Mounds, is coming up next on Connecticut. <music> We are so glad to have on the podcast today two of our state's most visible leaders on COVID-19 and a whole bunch of other issues, uh, the governor's chief of staff, Paul Mounds, and the chief operating officer of Connecticut, Josh Jabal. Welcome to the show, guys. I want to jump right into this because I know there's a lot of uh, questions we've gotten from viewers as well as a lot of interest in this episode. Um, You two are probably most well-known in Connecticut for being the two gentlemen who flanked the governor in those daily press conferences every single day. But uh, I want to start... Take us back to March 6th, right? The first COVID case uh, in Connecticut. Let's go all the way back there. Danbury Hospital, the governor's racing down there for a press conference to inform the state uh, that we have had a, uh, not a Connecticut resident, but someone who works in Connecticut has been uh, infected with COVID-19. Um, if you could give me some thoughts, I guess maybe we'll start with Paul, of what's going through your head. Um, th- this COVID-19 thing, had you ever heard of it before? And if so, what did you know and what were you expecting? Uh, first of all, thanks for having us. Um, Here's the interesting thing. For Josh and I, it was our first week completed in our respective roles. Mm -hmm. So that previous Friday, I took over to become the chief of staff, and Josh added the the duties of chief operating officer, the position I previously held. Um, On that March 6th, I was actually in Greenwich with the governor for a meeting, and I get a a call uh, from our team saying that, uh, we have confirmation of our first COVID case. What many people don't really know is that we were planning and preparing ourselves for when COVID would eventually uh, come to our state uh, for months uh, through our agencies, getting briefings from uh, national related agencies and us making sure that our emergency operations center protocol was ready. I think the thing that of course, caught us off guard is we just didn't know when it was going to occur in a lot of ways. So that first mm-hmm. day, um, I remember I start immediately, we uh, huddled with the governor, had the governor shoot up to Danbury. Um, we had members of our various teams, the public health commissioner, as well as our communications teams, head to head over to Danbury as well. And my role was, was I headed straight up to Hartford to our emergency operator. Center. So it was um, once we knew the first case was here, 
officially, we knew that we were going to be in it for the long haul after what seeing what was happening around the, uh, the nation and around the world. Very interesting. Josh, how about you? What was your recollection of that day, that, that first uh, case here in Connecticut? Yeah, it was... Uh... It was a it was a hard day, you know. I mean, I think we we had, as Paul said, we had anticipated for a while. You know, we'd seen what was happening in China and Italy at that point, right? The Kirkland nursing home outbreak it had already occurred, so we knew it was just a matter of time. But when you finally get that call that says, "All right, we got our first case. It's here in Connecticut," um, you know, it's tough. Uh, but uh, you know, as as Paul mentioned, you know, we were we were swinging into action, right? We knew that this was going to be an all-consuming endeavor, that it was going to require, uh, you know, all of government to be involved in our response, as well as partners, uh, you know, clearly in the healthcare industry who are going to be on the front lines of dealing with this crisis, both in terms of treating patients, but also in terms of helping to mount, you know, our, our response, uh, you know, in terms of testing and ultimately vaccinations. Like I said before, I think a lot of folks know the two of you from the press conferences, or at least recognize the two of you. What they might not know is that uh, you two have very different backgrounds that I think is interesting to come, for you two to come together to work on this. Um, Paul, you have extensive experience uh, in both state and federal government, as well as uh, in the private sector. And Josh, of course, you have uh, extensive experience, I think, in the health, health sciences and health technology uh, area, the private sector. So when this crisis kicks off in March and you guys have to sit down and start to work this problem. Talk about how you're leveraging your backgrounds, working together, you know, what's going on inside those rooms where you guys are really trying to like, for example, Josh, you know, having to procure all this PPE. Um, how do you talk a bit about how you guys drew, drew on your backgrounds to get that job done? Um, sure. So, you know, as you point out, Michael, you know, we're very fortunate in that we do have very different backgrounds. And therefore, I think we complement each other in really important ways. I, I can tell you, like I, every day, I'm asking Paul a question about, you know, how do we get something done um, uh, in in state government? Uh, you know, working with the legislature um, when we're, you know, a lot of what we have to do is is get the right talent in the right place at the right time. Because Paul has worked in and around the Capitol for so many mm -hmm. years, he knows so many of these people, and he knows their strengths and and you know what they're great at what they might not be great at and um because i'm i'm much newer here you know his advice and his guidance uh every day not you know to me but to the governor every day you know is just immensely valuable um you know in my background as he says in the private sector i've been running large organizations for a while um and, you know at ibm for a while and then you know as a ceo of a software startup in the in the scientific software space um you know working with clients and customers, many of whom we had to work directly with on our COVID response, that did become helpful. More than anything else, it was really about, you know, the team leading large organizations, problem solving with imperfect information, trying to get the right people in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I, I think Paul and I have made a fantastic team. I, I enjoyed every single minute of working with them. Yeah, I've joined it every minute working with, with Josh. I also want to say, don't take away the fact that he ran for Senate one time in his life and he served as campaign manager for Rosa DeLauro. So he's got a background in politics. <laughs> uh, yeah, my I've started working in the Capitol as a, a as a freshman in, in college. Um, I've always been interested in, in government and from my first internship with uh, State Representative Melody Curry to my positions with uh, Congressman Larson and Senator Blumenthal, I, I just, and also having 
uh, family members, including my father, being a 30 plus year state employee, I have an understanding of of the mechanisms of the, the state government in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. that is a, a strong strength of mine. Uh, the, the place where I, I would say that Josh became such an immense uh, value and an immense leader of, of our team is the, the way that Josh can go into the numbers and go into the details. It, it's just, I, I just love watching, uh, especially he, Josh would keep his special chart of the, the running numbers of the seven day average, the, the 14 day average and what's going on around the nation and really put into his whole Excel file that, that makes my head explode, but it was just great. I would just sit there and just watch him plug this out and how he would do it. And then I think the state of Connecticut got to see firsthand where we greatly complimented each other from the press conferences uh, with the governor. First and foremost, we know thoroughly that the leader of this team is the governor of the state of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have roles that we need to do to ensure that uh, the governor's vision is brought to life. Mine is on the execution side in a lot of ways and making sure we have our people in the right place to be able to move things forward. And Josh was just a great coordinator of everything as part of our emergency response as our uh, chief coordinator of that uh, emergency operation system in terms of how he put people in the right place, what was the right questions. And I, I think what the people of Connecticut is seeing in our numbers and our results in a lot of ways is a testament to the strength of, of this greater team that we have. We'll now throw things over to Dave for his interview with Alexis Givanter, the state Senate candidate in the 36th district special election. There's a special election in Connecticut and voting day is August 17th, but of course voting is already underway. You can get your absentee ballot if you live in Greenwich, the northern part of Stamford and about half of New Canaan, that's the district where Alexis Givanter is the uh, democratic nominee for state Senate. She joins us here today. Hi, David. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. How are you holding up? <laughs> I'm doing great. I have been um, so honored to be the Democratic nominee in this special election. Um, and I've just been uh, really moved by the amount of energy and excitement we have uh, coming into this race. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really good. Um, you know, volunteers have been coming from all over the state. Um, been speaking to so many voters that, um, you know, our, our message has really been resonating with. And so, so it's, it's quite a sprint, that's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's been a good one. Um, you, your activism was sort of rooted in the gun violence prevention issue. You're the, uh, I believe, Connecticut chapter leader. Is that correct? For Moms Demand uh, Action? That's right. I was. I was the state chapter leader for Connecticut for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And uh, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with that organization. Can you uh, tell me how that's sort of informed your decision to run and um, what Connecticut still needs to do? I mean, I think there's a perception that Connecticut has, you know, really strong gun laws and is is one of the places in this country that has has taken this issue seriously and taken it head on. But what more uh, needs to be done in your view? Sure. So I've spent my life advocating for others. Um, You know, first I was a business attorney and then um, became a gun violence prevention advocate. And so, um, 
you know, what I did in both of those roles is I always made sure to listen to people, bring, um, bring them together, build coalitions um, to create positive change. And so my work with gun violence prevention, um, you know, we were really successful in passing a number, as you mentioned, of gun safety laws over the course of several sessions. Um, and, and we did this in a way that was, um, you know, look, gun violence prevention is something that is broadly popular among Americans. Um, you know, over 90% of Americans want more gun safety laws. Uh, you know, over 70% of NRA members want the same. But there's no question that politically it's very difficult, as we all know, to get to get a lot done there. And so our resounding success in passing um, bill after bill on things so important, um, you know, safe storage requirements in the home, um, you know, you know, trying to um, prevent unintentional shootings uh, mm -hmm. by children, safe storage in cars where we know that guns have been stolen um, from cars and used in crimes across the state. That's really a crime fighting tool that our police really support. Banning ghost guns, which are incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, it, it, investing in, um, you know, gun violence, uh, city, city gun violence intervention programs, uh, which have shown to be so effective. These things really make a difference. Each law um, you know, they kind of work together holistically to, to keep our communities and our families safe. So, you know, I would say that my experience there, bringing people together to get things done, um, really informed my decision to run for office because I thought I could use these same skills and experience to create change on a number of the areas that, um, you know, and, and issues that are facing constituents today. Um, as far as what we have left to do in terms of gun violence prevention, you know, we've made so much progress, but of course, as we all know, there has been a rush on guns during the pandemic. You know, we're seeing increases in, um, in gun violence across the nation. Um, and so of course we need to remain vigilant and uh, continue to look at ways that we can keep everybody safe. Um, and so, you know, something that just passed but that needs uh, to be implemented and worked on is a, a gun violence um, prevention commission. So that's something that I would be really eager to work on. Um, and, and also there are um, bills in the works about uh, bulk purchasing. You know, mm -hmm. this is a loophole um, where if you, if you can purchase a lot of guns, they are often trafficked into our cities um, you know, where people who don't have, who haven't passed background checks can't get access to them, uh, normally are now getting access to guns. And so, you know, there's still a lot that can be done and a lot that must be done to keep our, our children and our families safe. Now you've been going out around the district, knocking on doors in Greenwich, uh, Stanford and New Canaan. What are other things that people are talking to you about? What do you find is sort of foremost in people's minds? You know, the pandemic absolutely is foremost, I think, on everybody's mind, um, you know, and the economy. Uh, so those are things where um, I'm hearing again and again and again, um, you know, how, how do we stay safe and how do we emerge from this pandemic stronger than ever? And it's incredible how much progress we have been making. Connecticut has been really a leader on this, um, you know, and, and, you know, really in large parts to Governor Lamont 
our vaccination rates are uh, 70%. That really helps protect us as this Delta variant starts to spread um, throughout the nation. Um, we are bringing in new companies and jobs, you know, over 500 jobs just to our district in the past few months. Um, you know, real estate in our district is, uh, is really seeing a boom. And so, you know, people just want to make sure that we continue to move in that direction. Um, and I'm going to make sure that we will. You know, I'm running on a platform of, it's what I like to call the three Ps. So public safety, which of course also includes public health, um, prosperity and progress. And so, you know, we talked a bit about public safety, which of course is gun violence prevention. It's um, keeping us safe from COVID. It's uh, funding our police and making sure our firefighters have the support that they need. Um, you know, prosperity includes keeping our taxes low and even lowering them, repealing the estate tax so that, um, you know, we don't lose our seniors as they are facing retirement. So Florida, we want to keep people here in Connecticut. It's making sure that we have housing stock at different price points so that um, our kids can move back here after college and that they have jobs to come back to and, and stay in Connecticut. Um, so, you know, prosperity is also investing in education, which is critically important. But then the other thing I'm hearing at the doors, of course, is that we have to keep our eye on the ball and remain vigilant when it comes to issues of progress. So, you know, protecting our fundamental right to vote and expanding ballot access. Um, defending women's rights, uh, you know, safeguarding our environment and fighting climate change. Um, you know, these are things that people are really concerned about. And, and I share those concerns and we'll fight for them in Hartford. Yeah, the next, uh, the next legislature will be voting on the constitutional amendment uh, for, for absentee balloting, correct? Yeah. So that's a, a key voting rights measure that we could, that we could certainly advance. Um, let's talk about taxes generally, more generally. You mentioned estate taxes specifically, but you know, broaden that out. Where what are your tax positions? Sure, I want to lower income taxes for all residents of Connecticut, um, and and what I think that will do is expand our ta tax base generally. You know, why do a lot of people move to Connecticut instead of Westchester or New Jersey? Um, mm -hmm. You know, they move here because of the lower taxes. And so the more people we're attracting here, the more companies that we're attracting here, based on the fact that people want to live and work here, um, you know, the more revenue that we're going to have overall. Um, same thing with the estate tax. You know, we don't want to be losing our seniors, which has a huge tax base. Um, and so I think retaining the people will allow us to um, keep taxes low, but overall still have the revenue that we need to remain fiscally responsible um, you know, pay down our debt, um, have a balanced, no tax increase budget, and continue to invest in important things like, uh, like, um, you know, education. Where can people go to uh, volunteer for your campaign or to learn more? Uh, so Alexis Gavanter and dot com. I know it's a weird name, so I'll spell it for <laughs> you. G like girl, E V like Victoria, A N like Nancy, T E R. AlexisGavanter.com. Um, and so there's information there on how to volunteer. And, you know, we've been so blessed to have so many active volunteers, but we of course need more. There are only two weeks left until this election. Um, and so we need people to be canvassing, phone banking, text banking, and just spreading the word on social media. So please, please, please reach out. Um, and we will, um, we will find 
whatever way you are comfortable to put you to work. Um, and then there's also information, and this is really essential, on how to vote uh, in yeah. a special election because there are a number of ways. Um, you can vote by mail, you know, absentee. You can uh, vote by Dropbox by, for absentee at uh, the town halls or the Stanford Government Center. And you can also um, vote in person. So for example, you know, I live in Greenwich. If I go to town hall and ask for an absentee ballot application, I can fill it out right there, hand it back to the person, and then they hand me a ballot, I vote, and it's done. So that whole thing takes, um, I've been told by numerous people, about three minutes. So that's another way to do it if you know, you're gonna be out of town on August 17th. And then of course there's you know, voting on election day, uh, which is August 17th in person. Um, but you know, especially with COVID rates going up and you know, a lot of people are away in August, um, you know, whether on vacation or to drop their kids at college, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that people may, um, you know, August 17th may not work for them. And so we really are encouraging as many people to make sure that your voice is heard in this election. Um, and uh, so to, to get there early, if you can. Again, that is August 17th is the in-person voting day, but you just heard how to vote absentee. You can do it. You can do it by walking down to your town hall. That's true. Or by applying online. All those directions are at alexisgavanter.com. And the spelling of her name is also in the title of this very podcast. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll see you out on the trail. I'm going to be out there knocking doors uh, myself next weekend. And um, we hope we can get our listeners to join us. We now return you to Mike's interview with Paul Mounds and Josh Jabal. It's interesting you talk about those press conferences. I watched those almost every day. I'm sure a lot of our listeners did as well. Um, Josh and Paul, funny story. My my place I go get to get my haircut, I would always kind of go around in the afternoon and they'd have it on. You know, one time they asked me about, I had mentioned something about how I do work in politics and I, I sort of knew Josh and they said, you know, you got to tell Josh, he's got he's to smile more. He's got to be more upbeat. because he's, he's, That's he's, usually me. <laughs> I'm usually the one that's supposed to be. Yeah. I'll tell a story. I got, I had a woman around uh, the holiday time. I'm going shopping and she said, aren't you Josh? And I go, no, I'm, I'm Paul. She goes, no, you're Josh. And, I'm like, and I had to take out my ID and show her. I was like, no, I'm Paul. <laughs> and so as we're in line, she's telling people like, he's, he's, he's on TV. He does this and this. I really, He's, that's really Josh, <laughs> but 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 yeah, no, it, it was interesting being recognized because I think the interesting thing about Josh and I, we like being behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, we actually had to be convinced to do these press conferences. Really, we our communications director Max Reese, and and seeing what was going on in, in other states, really asked us that we're because Max, great communications guy, he he saw that we're gonna have to do these for a while. And he's like, I think it would be beneficial if the two of you do it. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was like, no, nah, I just prefer being behind the scenes. But I, I see what the benefit was, because I think the thing for Josh and I, we're, we're perpetual staffers. Uh, we, we don't believe in about the title. We believe in the work. Mm -hmm. And the work was on behalf of the governor and on behalf of the state. So we like results more than saying that it was particularly one person or two people who worked on it. We like saying the team got it done. Yeah. So that's why we want to be behind the scenes. But we saw the benefits uh, after a few of them. Yeah, and certainly the results speak for themselves. I mean, we're probably leading the country in a lot of different metrics. 
Um, Josh, any any uh, <laughs> any weird recognitions? Any anyone stop you on the street and say, uh, "Hey, you're that guy from TV." Yeah, yeah, it, it does happen a lot these days, as, as Paul mentioned. Um, and, and you know, you, we we do joke about it, um, and and I have been accused of not smiling enough, somewhat regularly. But I mean, t- to be honest, though, it's it you know, we we can kind of look back on some of those moments now and joke about it, but in the moment, you know, we we mm-hmm. you know we were carrying a heavy weight, and you know, it, it was never lost on us one day that the advice we were giving the governor and the decisions he was making and the speed and quality implications for people in the state. And, you know, for me, you know, coming from the technology industry, that's not something, you know, historically I spent a lot of a way I really spent a lot of time carrying on my shoulders. Um, and, but, you know, we, we all took it incredibly seriously as you would expect. Um, but it was, not not just the the weight of the decisions, but the uncertainty oftentimes as well, right? In which we were navigating, because as we all know, right? At every at every step of this pandemic, you know, no one had the information that we would have liked to have had, and the answers, guidance about what we should do at certain times. So everybody was trying to figure it out as we went, and so that uncertainty on top of the life and death decision, you know, nature of a lot of these decisions we were advising the governor on. It was tough and very stressful, as you would imagine. And so, yeah, we were, there was, I mean, we, we've enjoyed working together, but in the sense of, um, you know, doing hard things with people that you really respect and enjoy being, solving hard problems, as opposed to the nature of the challenge itself was, was obviously very, um, very, very, very difficult. Use that word uncertainty. I think that can characterize a lot of this pandemic. Um, I'm wondering how you address the challenge of dealing with that uncertainty, understanding that when you're sitting in those meetings in the morning, you're probably thinking, well, there's probably six different options we could go with from a policy standpoint, and each is going to have a different impact on the state, but we need to pick one or maybe two and then go communicate it clearly out there, um, even though inside we know we're kind of unsure if this is going to work or not. How would you deal with that challenge of, on the one hand, being very uncertain and maybe not working with uh all the data that you would have liked to see and then having to go out at 4 p.m. every single day and essentially present a very confident, uh, very uh, assured uh, public face when you knew that some of these decisions uh, for all you knew might not be the best ones and and maybe based on data that was outdated or incomplete. How would you navigate that uh, challenge between uncertainty on the one hand and then on the other hand having to go out and and appear very certain and appear very uh, confident? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, particularly in those early days, right, every day was was a different uh, a different experience in that regard, because the the challenges and what we needed to do next varied so much. I mean, I think back and Paul, you know, those those early days, even even later into the pandemic, you know, oftentimes you'd see those four o'clock press conferences and we'd have a guest and we'd have PowerPoint charts and we'd have some key messages, um, you know, just to let you behind the curtain many days that morning, we didn't know you know yet like who was going to be on or what we're going to be talking about because we'd be looking at the latest data and we'd be looking at what mm-hmm. what we needed to focus on and and then and then that day would be putting together the analytics the charts lining up the guests oftentimes there was an accompanying executive order that our legal team was scrambling to get together and get out the door and research properly and draft i mean it was uh you know it was it was pretty wild um uh but it was it was Every day was was uh, you know a learning opportunity because we were touching every corner of the state, every corner of our economy, of our healthcare delivery system. Um, it, you know, it was, it was a pretty remarkable time. Yeah, no, it, 
it, I would say overall, it's you you can prepare all you want, but there are still these moments where you're you're feeling uncertain. Um, and here's the crazy thing: those are natural reactions. I think one of the things that I was saying to the team throughout this is that there is a lot of noise. When they say noises, whether it's constituents saying sending emails at saying, here's my concern, or we want you to make this decision, we want this, this, and that. You have the data as well. You have to take in all the noise, but you can't let it distract you. You have to take it in and make it be, to utilize it to best inform your decision making. But then when you make the decision, you also have to be willing to say, okay, well, that didn't work. We need to adjust. I think for a lot of states, there was an, uh, there was a fear of adjusting. But I'll tell you this, when we thought that we were making the right decision and we needed the time to, to go by to allow for that decision to fully come to fruition, we stuck by it. Because the main goal throughout this whole thing was how can we ensure the overall health of the people of Connecticut through mm -hmm. a once in a lifetime pandemic. Right. So, um, Obviously, I don't want to make it sound like we're we're through this um, because we're not. We're certainly not. There's certainly more work to do. Um, and but I do want to talk a bit about the sort of present day, particularly the fact that during this pandemic and sort of in the last few months, we've had a legislative session up in Hartford where we've been able to do some pretty unprecedented and impressive things, uh, namely the legalization of marijuana, passing a budget that was both balanced and you know made massive investments in some of the most underprivileged people in our state. Um, Paul, I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about how you approached broadly, right, this 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 legislative session with the backdrop of the COVID-19 crisis, but also the understanding and the knowledge that this budget is going to affect the state for years to come. How are you thinking about the whether it's I mean, you can pick an issue if you'd like, but more broadly, you know, how are you how are you thinking about equity? How are you thinking about um, prioritizing things and 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 really um, you know, coming off the, I'll just use the word tail end of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, what's your mindset or what was your mindset going into that session? Uh, before I answer the question fully, I'm going to just say this one thing. This is the importance of having a great team. I was able to put a lot of my energy during the legislative session toward our policy process and getting these initiatives done. If I didn't have a teammate in Josh DeWall, who was basically running and making sure the COVID response was top notch. I didn't have to worry and felt from a juggling standpoint that I had to worry about a lot on that front because I knew that I could put all my energy on that, on our policy and our legislative process because I had Josh on basically taking the leadership role on this team. Uh, equity played a huge part in the discussion in, in all facets of um, policy, whether it was dealing with the marijuana discussion, whether it was dealing with the budgetary discussion, whether it's the health and human services, transportation, you go down the line, um, equity became a driving factor. Uh, and it's because of the pandemic itself. It showed that the inequities that we are facing in our nation, uh, where uh, not everyone is able to have the same outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's by location, whether it's by educational opportunity. And we're striving to ensure that everyone can have the same outcomes no matter where they are 
uh, and whether, where, no matter where they live. So that was a driving factor throughout the session, not only by the legislature, but also by the governor. And I think one of the things that we were striving to do is one, take into account what was the federal resources that were bringing, being brought into the state, and how we can use that to, to make once in a lifetime investments in people, not just places, but really in people. Because by changing uh, the, the outcomes for people, it will lead to better outcomes for people in the places that they're in. Mm -hmm. So our budget uh, that was passed uh, with the great support of uh, a bipartisan budget, but I, I give a lot of credit to uh, the leaders in both chambers and Senator Looney and uh, Speaker Ritter and, and making sure that the collective priorities of the legislature and the governor were reflected in uh, this once in a lifetime budget. Uh, this is still a two-year budget, but the beauty of two-year budgets is it allows for a building block. So the key is how are we going to utilize the, the resources in this budget to make people's lives different and better. And now the key is how are we going to make sure that we can continue that in future years? And that's what this legislative session is going to be about. It's not only about those particular line items and the funding represented. It's about that this is going to be the start of the new foundation for Connecticut and building off of that building block of this once in a generation budget. And, and just paint us a brief picture because people keep using this word once in a lifetime, um, you know, turn as if it's a turning point. Talk a bit about the, the confluence of factors between COVID and the federal aid. How different is this from a resource standpoint and also from a scope standpoint from what you would have done in 2019 or in 2017? Um, what makes this one so important? Well, I'll say this as someone who was the policy and legislative director for the, uh, Governor Malloy, um, we didn't have the opportunity to invest of this magnitude on the general fund side of the budget. Mm -hmm. We were in the cutting mode because of the, the work that Governor Malloy was doing to get the budget back into order in a lot of ways. So when I say once in a lifetime, here's what I'll say. Yes, we talked about the legalization of marijuana and what that does from a, a justice standpoint of equity, but here's what it also will do. It will allow for uh, those from these uh, in, justice impacted areas to be able to not only uh, be a purchaser in the marketplace to actually run a marketplace mm -hmm. by the, the equity licenses that's provided and the funding that will go to them being able to start new businesses. There's a new equity fund that is going to be created uh, that over the next uh, three years is going to make per year $175 million in investments in our urban areas. So when I hear people talk about what's the urban agenda, all you got to do is see it thoroughly. There's a strong urban agenda that has been reflected in this budget that the governor uh, fought for and signed into uh, to law. And that is going to tra transform our cities from brownfields. It's going to transform in terms of better opportunities from a business standpoint. And it's also a budget that is going to have a fully funded ECS program that's going to ensure that educational opportunity and we get to the point where you are not defined by your zip code for education. You're just defined by being in the state of Connecticut to get a sound education. So yes, this is a once in a lifetime budget. But like I said, budgets are about building blocks. 
And then what are we going to do to ensure that we build off of this next budget? So the beauty of the executive branch is execution. And we're going to execute the hell out of this budget to make sure that it's going to benefit the people of Connecticut, no matter where they live. And then we're going to get ready to work on what the next one's going to look like. Outstanding. And Josh, some of the initiatives you've, you've spearheaded, I noticed a through line through them. I've seen you at the press conferences for the cyber bill on, on private sector cybersecurity. I've seen you at the bill signing for the uh, initiatives to really clean up the way that our government bureaucracies work and, and move more of that onto technology platforms versus pen and paper. And what I see Josh Chabal doing is I see Josh Chabal saying, we just been through one crisis. We got to prepare for the next ones down the road, and we got to pre- we got to maybe prevent some of the next ones down the road. Talk a bit about what you've done during this session and the initiatives you've uh, spearheaded. Sure. Um, yeah, as as you point out, I mean, I've really tried to focus a lot on um, you know our state government operations, right? Um, we've in many, like most states, I don't. This is not meant to be critical, uniquely critical of Connecticut, but most state governments are way behind the times in terms of how we use technology, um, how we organize to meet the challenges we have today and tomorrow. And, you know, with under the governor's leadership, this is, you know, one of the reasons I joined this administration is because he has a real passion for this topic. This is one of his real areas of focus is, you know, leaving this state government much more uh, prepared to serve the people of Connecticut with the best service, the lowest cost structure possible, high quality, lower risk. Um, but that's hard work. And, and so we're that we've got a lot of collaboration across our agencies. We've got a fantastic group of commissioners, very focused on working together to tackle a lot of these challenges. And as you point out, the pandemic um, in many areas helped accelerate our efforts. Um, You know, it showed uh, people how we can work together uh, online in in ways that can be even more efficient, how we can move quickly. I mean, we stood up entire new programs that didn't even exist in a matter of weeks Mm-hmm. That in kind of quote normal times, you know, we might have been studying and debating and fighting about for years before we actually got to work on them, let alone implemented them. And so we showed ourselves, we showed state government, we showed our taxpayers that we can do things fast when we put our mind to it. And so now a lot of the effort is is making sure we don't lose those lessons, we don't lose that momentum, and extend it out to how we provide services, what we're doing at the Department of Motor Vehicles, moving things online what we're doing with new online services across our health and human service agencies. There's just so much opportunity to provide higher quality services at a lower cost. Cause as Paul said, you know, eventually we're going to be back, you know, at, at the budget game again, um, without all this federal money. Mm-hmm. And we owe it to the people of this state to, to be as efficient as we can be so that every dollar we spend can go directly out to the people who need our help the most. Outstanding. And, and just give me one concrete example. You mentioned the Department of Motor Vehicles. I'm 20. Um, I went to the DMV once when I got my license, and I hated every second of it. <laughs> uh, when I go to get my license renewed, I think, what do I have to do two years from now or a year from now? Um, am I going to be able to do that online? Will the other uh, young listeners to this podcast be able to do most of those DMV functions uh, either on their phone or on a computer? Oh, Josh is going to geek out. I love it. I'm going to sit back. Yeah, I'll keep it short because I could talk about this all afternoon. But yes, if you need to renew your driver's license, you can do it online in about five minutes, you know, in your pajamas and two in the morning if you want to. That's a new service we rolled out last fall. Um, but fundamentally, you know, the, the goal here is to provide the same, what we call in technology, user experience, right? The same expectation that people have about how easy it is to buy a product online, how easy it is to uh, pay a bill online. You should have that same modern, intuitive experience when you need to transact or get information from the state of Connecticut online. And we're 
making progress there every day. Funny things happening on the DMV, by the way. When I hear people, you know, stop me and talk about the DMV, now it's compliments. It's, you know, I was just able to do this online. I don't hear complaints. We had, we've had two positive stories about the DMV above the fold in the Hartford Current in the last six months. Best we could hear, no one's ever had one before. We've had two in the Right. I was going to say those th those words don't often go together, positive experience in DMV. But I think <laughs> the work you're doing on, uh, you know, overhauling all the UI there is, is amazing. And um, I got to say, you mentioned 2 a.m. And that's like my most productive hours are 2 a.m. in the morning in my pajamas. So um, maybe next time I have to renew my license, I'll do it then. Um, well, thank you guys for talking about these issues. I know we jumped around a bit, but I wanted to get a lot in there. Before we go, I want to end on a bit of a lighter note, which is that I am on a never ending quest to find good Connecticut pizza. Um, working in New Haven this summer, I obviously get my fair share uh, there. And being from the sort of southern part of the state, uh, we get to kind of get that uh, New York uh, spillage, spill over there. Um, you two are from different parts of the state. You work in the same part of the state. Tell me uh, where the best pizza is, in your opinion. And there will be a rebuttal period to, to debate that. <laughs> well, I'll let's okay, so I'll go first. Like, I, I'm from a part of the state where it's really greek style pizza is like the key and that's where and where are you from really i'm uh born in hartford raised in east hartford so that so that's the key so i'm gonna i know everyone's gonna say new haven style and i love new haven style i can talk about modern i can talk about bar i can talk about sally's and Pepe's. Mm -hmm. i'm gonna throw one out there that probably is not on the beaten path for a lot of people i'm gonna say tony's pizza in willimantic connecticut mm. has one of the best pepperoni pizzas greek style that i love um so I'm going to throw, because I know everyone's going to say New Haven style, and I a thousand percent agree with you, but I'm going to go and give a different one uh, to add to the mix. Tony's Pizza, Willimantic. Uh, I hear Willimantic. I know that's not too far from UConn, so I might, <laughs> might might have to go up there this semester. Josh, what about, I know you're from the New Haven area, so you're probably going to say that, but yeah. uh, what, what do you uh, think? I'll take the same approach as Paul. So, I, so as mentioned, I worked for Rosa early in my career, and, and as a result, was trained early on that uh that sally's is the best pizza in the city and i'll stand by that today although i was born and raised in brantford so i'll go off the beaten trail like paul a little bit and i'll, I'll give a shout out to marco's pizza in brantford um, my my old software company we were based in brantford and when we'd order pizza for our employees every friday that's where we'd get our pizza from marco's and they do a great job too well pizza have you guys retained the pizza every friday uh, tradition in the governor's office or no well we're we're, start, we're starting to get everybody back in collectively so we are mm -hmm. we'll, we'll be putting that together um i think the team knows i love pizza uh i like yeah. good pizza not new jersey pizza i like good pizza. <laughs> so uh, we will uh definitely look to institute that i'm also a huge buffalo wings person and the one thing that i'm oh, doing this summer is basically trying to cre create my own list of the best buffalo wing places in connecticut so if you have any suggestions please let me know because i'm going around well I mean, I gotta say, I gotta say, Archie's is really Archie's good. Is good. Um, and 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 uh, my state representative, who's a Republican, but who I will say uh, makes some of the best chicken wings. Dave Rutigliano's uh, restaurant, local. I think there's actually one in Branford. Um, they uh, like they double fry their wings. It's they're so good there. Um, <laughs> so a little shout out across the aisle there. Uh, anyways, th again, thank you guys. Uh, I want to give you guys a couple seconds for any parting thoughts uh, or messages out to the listeners. Uh, Paul, why don't you go first? Yeah, there? no, I, I'll, I'll say this. First of all, uh, uh, the message that I've been saying to everyone is that we're, we're Team Connecticut. And that's what this COVID crisis has shown, that um, we all are on one team. 
and that is Team Connecticut. So I would just say thanks to everyone for everything that they're doing to not only keep themselves safe, keep their families safe, uh, but also to bring, to ensure that we have pride in our state. Um, I love the state. It's a mm -hmm. beautiful state. Um, and Josh and I wouldn't be doing these jobs if we didn't love our state. So storing and making sure that we have strong pride in our state is is a key factor so let's just keep fighting as one team and and keeping the pride in our state outstanding love it yeah i i totally agree i, I guess the only thing i I'd, I'd maybe offer is if you're listening to this podcast you presumably have some amount of interest in connecticut, connecticut government <laughs> connecticut politics um but uh get involved uh you know if you're not already you know and that could be running for office at the local level at the state level or it could just be, you know, uh, serving on a board or a commission or, or, you know, coming up and taking a job with us. I mean, a lot of what we can accomplish is is only gated by how many, you know, really talented, passionate, hardworking people, you know, can can join us on the team. And so we're always looking for people that fit that mold and want to get involved. And there's a lot of great opportunities in this administration that, that get involved and really have an impact. Outstanding. Well, those are two great parting messages from two great leaders in our state. I'll let you guys get back to the important business of running our state and say thank you for joining us on the podcast. And to our listeners, we'll see you all next time. Well, I guess we've made history here today, today Dave. The first Connecticut's episode with, I think, the first one with three guests. Is that right? No, no. I, I'm going to throw a flag on that. We had Chris Murphy and two presidential electors. Right, right. That's that's a very good point. Way Which, back. by the way, you should go back and listen to our listeners if you haven't. That was a, that was a uh, that was a fantastic one. I mean, Chris Murphy, right there. And then uh, the whole talk about the presidential elector process was really fascinating, and of course, essential. Yes, as we learned all too well uh, a few months after that interview. I love that conversation uh, with Josh and Paul. Uh, they're both great guys to talk to, and I really enjoyed your conversation, Dave, with Alexis. Yeah, she is just absolutely dynamic. If you want to volunteer, and believe me, volunteers win elections, uh, you can join from absolutely anywhere, even if you're not listening to this in Connecticut, um, by joining a phone bank. It is ctdems.org slash phone to sign up for that. And if you are nearby or willing to make the drive to uh, Fairfield County, you can volunteer to knock doors. That is the most effective way to help. And you can do that at alexisgavanter.com. Well, outstanding. And I hope to see everyone down there or virtually uh, volunteering. So anyways, uh, thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another episode of Kinetocrats, the CT Dems podcast. Thanks for tuning in.